I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Welcome everybody, this is another one of my intelligent speech shows where I speak to somebody I find interesting, profound, or just maybe just like a bit of a friend, and we have a little bit of a chat about a topic which I find somewhat interesting. And today, the fickle hand of fate has pointed me in the direction of Alexander von Sternberg. He's a podcaster of some repute. Well, according to old Apple Podcasts, 184 people have rated his podcast and rated it pretty highly. Alexander has a podcast called History Impossible. Alexander, tell us why you got into the whole podcasting game. Well, I actually have um, done podcasting before. When I was much younger, I found myself getting a gig on a video game podcast when I lived in Chicago briefly. That's no longer a thing. I did a pop culture commentary podcast for a while just for fun with a friend of mine. Uh, but with history, it, it really was just because as time went on, it turned out that most of the podcasts I was listening to were uh, history podcasts. We have, of course, Dan Carlin. I like to call him the grand poobah of history podcasts, um, maybe podcasts in general. He's really one of the best in the game. I was listening to him. I think I started listening to him in 2013, and he'd already been doing it by then for I want to say like eight years. I think he started in 05 or 06 when podcasts were barely a thing. Um, and uh, I was listening to my friend Daniele Bolelli's podcast, History on Fire, after I caught him on him and Carlin on Rogan, which is some years ago. Uh, so I was listening to both their podcasts and then gradually that expanded. When I moved out to Los Angeles, I actually, that's where I met Daniele because he was teaching at Santa Monica College at the time. And he encouraged me to, you know, do the history podcasting thing. I, I was thinking about it. I had a story in mind and that what is what turned into the still yet un, uh, incomplete, uh, quote unquote, Muslim Nazis series, which has a much more complex second half coming, hopefully by the end of this year, uh, which relates to a lot of, you know, what I presume you wanted to talk about uh, today. Um but yeah, so I started with that. But Daniele actually told me, no, no, don't start with a series. You should start with some one-off episodes and just, you know, work your way up from there. And I followed that advice and it's it's paid off, I think. I've been able to, you know, garner an audience through having various uh, subjects in history that I've covered. But yeah, I've lately, though, I've definitely been going down the World War II route, which I've been very interested in for a very long time, long before I ever did a podcast and, you know. Talking about history is fun, but being able to make a show about it is, you know, even better. So that's basically why. There's a little bit of a trope 
shall we say, whether it's a History Channel or History Podcast, that sure. um, the easiest gateway bit of history in for people is either the Romans or it's World War Two. Why do you think right. that is the case? That is a very good question. I have thought about that too. I would add just on a side note that if you're talking about Americans though, we, we do tend to have at least a sort of community within a history community that's very obsessed with our civil war. Uh, but that's an American thing. I, I get the feeling not very many other countries study the American civil war or people in other countries do except people who are interested in our history. But yeah, I, Roman history and world war two are the big ones. And I think Roman history makes sense because we, through things like Hollywood and, and uh, you know, just a lot of things in our culture, we've identified them as sort of the prototypical how a democracy becomes a dictatorship and how an empire falls kind of narrative. Plenty of other empires have fallen in history, but Rome, uh, Rome is probably the most famous and most documented, at least in the West. Um, World War II, I think that, again, also relates to things like pop culture, like cinema especially, but also World War II, when you just look at it without squinting, it's a very clear good versus evil story, and people tend to respond very well to that. And in a lot of ways, that's you know why I've been getting into World War II on its margins, because it the more you look at it, the more you realize it's just like any other war. And while obviously you do have pretty clear bad guys, there was another side of that war, namely the Soviet Union, who Dan Carlin actually said in his uh, series about the Eastern Front he did a number of years ago, this isn't good guys versus bad guys. This is bad guys versus bad guys. Um, but in general, though, I think it's even more complex than that. Every side has good guys and bad guys on it, including World War II. Uh, but I think the reason why it's so popular is because it's easy to see it as a good versus evil narrative. You're completely correct. And I always kind of say that it's the ultimate Hollywood movie, World War II, because yes. the bad guys are bad but they look good in their badness. They, they you know, they, they're dressed really well. And yeah. they, they start off uh, at a gallop, the bad guys, and then uh, things turn around just in time, you know, for the last third, you know, for the last reel, yeah. things turn around and turn around kind of pretty much spectacularly. So, so it's, it's, it's easy to, t to, to, to grab people. Um, but with, with the story of World War Two, and very obviously as well, there is um, there's cinema as well. So uh, we can see all the protagonists and the antagonists, you know, in a way that we can't with we just about can with World War One, but it's fragmentary. But right. any other conflict beforehand, we can't. So, and then dare I say as well, um, because of recorded media, because it's relatively recent, it's only some some eighty years ago. Um, the ramifications of that war we can still feel in our world. But why is it, just before we kind of go into World War II in, in, in some kind of depth, why would you say, Alexander, that history is so male-driven? If, if I look at the amount of mm. podcasts that, that there are, um, it's us men that seem to be dominated, uh, dom who basically dominate the whole on our hosting duties. Yes, there's the history chicks. There are notable exceptions, but fundamentally it's incredibly male driven whereas world war ii is really just about every european country went 
to war and the whole society did and there was a home front and there was Rosie the Riveter in the US and the equivalent in in the in the UK but when us guys tell that history we we seem to be telling it just for other men why do you think that is that is a good question i have thought about that too because um there's the stereotypical answer which is that it's men who go to war for most of human history with obvious exceptions of like say the vikings and the mongols uh those are very important exceptions don't get me wrong uh but i think that that's sort of what the bias has been so therefore that just sort of is what informs us in that way funny enough i i wish i could cite it offhand like where i read it but there was a study done that showed that it was like the majority of medieval wars were actually started by queens not kings so that's a very interesting wrinkle in that but i think it has to do with how history has been taught over the years too as because you know Danielli has talked about this of uh, history on fire and and he's expressed frustration that so much of history is about war and suffering, uh, which is why he really enjoyed doing his episode on EQ, uh, Sojun, I think is his name, a, ph a Japanese philosopher. Very little conflict in that whatsoever. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think like when you look at history as, you know, one of conflict, and then you filter that through the lens of how conflict is supposedly a male thing, physical conflict, and I'd say predominantly in a lot of cases it is that is going to color the way you talk about it, whether you attempt to do otherwise or not. Um, but I, I mean, I'm trying to think of a more satisfying answer than that, but it's really hard because that, that is a very good question. Why do we, wh why is it such a, a, a quote unquote male endeavor? I honestly don't think I have an answer to be, I'm sorry to say it's very hard. To, it's hard to say. Before we go into world war two in, in detail, because I was going to say that was my gateway drug, uh, my gateway into the drug, which is history. Um, right. Let's talk quickly about your process, how you actually create your shows. Um, tell, us, tell us about that. How do you put them together? How long does it take you? Shoot. It can, I mean, in terms of length, I mean, there seems to be an average for every podcaster. My average seems to be anywhere from 45 to 60 days between episodes. Um, and in that time, I, and there's obviously crossover while I'm working on one episode, I'm doing the research for the next one. Um, currently right now I'm about, I'm wrapping up, putting together all my notes and uh, script work for uh, the next story I'm covering. Um, but basically what I do is I, I first have a, have my list of topics that I want to do. And right now, like we've been saying, I've been focusing on world war two. Uh, so I have my list of topics. I know what I'm going to do several episodes ahead of time. So then I gather at least two to four secondary sources. It obviously depends on the subject. Sometimes there is not nearly enough written about some subjects. So those episodes tend to be a bit shorter. Uh, but um, I, I, I gather the sources, I read them, I use the little sticky flags on regular books, I highlight passages on ebooks, and I go and I, after I finish reading all of them, I start jotting down notes into a word file of sort of like an outline. I kind of follow the same process as a um, well as a novelist does, or some novelists do when they write out what they want to write in each chapter. So basically what I do is I just create a sort of timeline of what I want to cover. 
and how I want to cover it. And then I write out a script that I essentially read from, though I give myself plenty of room to improvise, which I always end up doing every episode. I mean, I'm not anything like Dan Carlin. He's kind of an outlier who he just goes into a studio and starts talking and has his books on hand. And I, for the life of me, do not know how he does that. Very few podcasters I know do that besides him. So, uh, but yeah, so basically I have a script of varying lengths written out and I record, you know, what I'm reading and cut it together and uh, release first on Patreon and then release to the public. That's pretty, that's pretty much it. You, you script absolutely everything. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I give myself room for improv and I like to think that it's not very clear when I'm improvising and when I'm uh, reading from the script, I try to act it out a little bit. So it makes it sound natural. Gotcha. Right. Let, let, let's talk about, um, uh, the second world war. Um, right. It, it, it is the conflict of which I think it's probably, I'll probably fairly safe to say there are the most amount of podcasts about, um, absolutely. It started depending on which country, it's either 1938, 1939, 1941, or um, crumbs. Which other country would have come in later than that? Can't remember when Hungary, no, Hungary would have joined before 1941. So let's, let, let's end it at 1941, at least for the major protagonists. And in Britain, it started like this. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. That is a bit of audio, which is the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain um, on September 3rd, uh, telling the country uh, that we're about to go to war against Nazi Germany. And it's, if, if you're British, it's totally an iconic bit of audio. Uh, made even more poignant with the fact that just the year beforehand, uh, Neville Chamberlain is waving around a piece of paper in Munich saying, you know, peace in our time. We, we don't need to yeah. work. So Britain, post-World War II, has very much defined itself as this plucky nation that when the whole world turned its back um, on, the, the, which the whole world has turned, uh, turned its back on, because it looked like Nazi Germany was going to roll through all of Europe. France is defeated, mm -hmm. Norway is occupied, etc., well, and, in, in the most recent episode I did, a uh, full episode, mm -hmm. I talked about, I mean, it, they technically did get to Britain, the Channel Islands. That, I mean, when I read about that, I couldn't imagine, I mean, that was sort that's sort of like if the Japanese hadn't just bombed Pearl Harbor, but they had invaded Hawaii and occupied it, assuming Hawaii had been a state by then. But it, it felt, it, when I read that, 
read about that, I was struck by how personal that must have felt for so many people, especially for the people who lived on those islands and felt abandoned by the government. You know, uh, it's a real point of technicality there. Um, sure. The Channel Islands are not actually part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So they're not. Interesting. They're not, technically, no. Uh, they're actually uh, crown dependencies. So, okay. uh, and this bit, I don't know if this bit will actually go and make the podcast, but so the history of the Channel Islands, they're very close to mainland France. Like you, you, can, yeah. well, you can swim the English Channel anyway, but they're incredibly close. Um, 1066 is key to understanding the Channel Islands. When uh, Duke William of Normandy uh, comes over to England and conquers England, they're part of the Duchy of Normandy. They're the only remnant left of that duchy. That's the reason why they're so close mm. to France. All the inhabitants have French surnames, even though they speak English. And so they've never been incorporated as part of the United Kingdom. They have the same ruler as the person who is the head of state of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but it's not part of England, Wales, Scotland, or Northern Ireland. They're crown dependencies. So you see these wonderful old photographs, which is of um, German officers speaking to, uh, you know, speaking uh, to what looks like British policemen, because that's the way they're dressed outside of, of British yeah. telephone boxes. But it's not technically Britain. So, okay. so anyway, but but that's a real point of technicality. But but well, that's a very article. interesting point, though. I would think it matters. I mean, th that sounds very important, actually. <laughs> and, and and also, those Channel Islands were never liberated. So after ninety, mm. after D Day, nineteen forty four, the Allies just ignore them because it's not worth the effort. So they're mm. held by the Germans until Germany surrenders in May forty five. Mm-hmm. Right. But anyway, um, that's a bit I've we've gone round and round the houses, but my my but my setup was because the theme of this is forgotten themes. So right. from your perspective as somebody who's really studying um World War Two and and I do want to definitely come on to the uh the Muslim Nazis um later, what theme do you see about let's say Britain? Which you think I mean, is really redolent to you, but people don't really think about it. It's not something which either the British proclaim or it's kind of been lost to the midst of time. A, th a theme that uh, hasn't been uh, appreciated enough, you would say? Yeah, yeah, about Britain's contribution uh, in World War II. Oh, in okay, Britain's contribution. Well, I think the first thing is showing the first meaningful sign of resistance against Nazi imperialism. I mean, there's obviously other examples. I would actually put Britain and Finland in the same category. So Finland was facing off against the Soviets, and they unfortunately did ally themselves with the Nazis later on, but then they kicked the Nazis out. So we got to give Finland a lot of credit there. But I put Finland and Britain in the same camp of being the example being set to the rest of the non-Axis sympathetic or non-Axis defeated world saying, hey you know, this is a war worth fighting. This is, you know, we're, we're fighting against tyranny in that respect. So I think Britain, as an example setter, I think, is where I would place them in history. Uh, 
re really good shout. I also think that our history of technological prowess, the radar is developed in Britain. Um, oh, code breaking for sure. And code breaking, exactly. Code breaking. Yeah. That we don't really, that's kind of almost been lost. And mm -hmm. and also our contribution to the Manhattan Project as well. You know that wasn't solely yeah. um, a, a, a U.S. thing. Um, of course, yeah. Very obviously, um, Britain is going to stand alone uh, for a time. And one of the most iconic characters of this conflict um, is Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. I would say to the House. As I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That is just another bit of... Um iconic radio if you're british true and what really separates the first world war from the second is pr it is the fact that because of mass communications we can now hear our leaders and they understand that morale is incredibly important and this is and that speech comes at a time when britain is all alone. France has fallen. And the British cabinet is split between whether they should come to a, an agreement with Germany or whether they should fight on. And Britain has no heavy, heavy artillery left in the field. What it has is, is, the, is the English Channel dividing it away from, uh, dare I say, the Nazi hordes. And uh, Winston Churchill basically says, no, we're, we're never going to surrender. I think that's one of the themes of World War II, which I don't think we've actually really forgotten, because the Germans, the Nazis, sorry, let's call, let's call them the Nazis. Uh, Hitler sure. really does develop, doesn't he, in the 1930s um, through Goebbels, an amazingly choreographed, uh, theatrical set of movie reels, all which are there to whip up the G the German nation. You know, G Goebbels was a master of propaganda. The Soviets were as well. They used cinema. 
Um, and obviously, one of the most iconic bits of radio um, is going to be FDR telling the American people that um, when he speaks to Congress, that America is going to go to war against the Japanese. And, and I think we still, and we see an echo of that with Zelensky in, in Ukraine with these nightly addresses, don't we? That the leader being in front of the nation, but also speaking to the nation, honestly, um, is a, it's a very powerful theme from World War II, wouldn't you say? I would definitely say so. It was the uh, beginning of um, uh, politics as, I shouldn't say as theatrics, but politics as mass communication, you could say. Um, propaganda, like you said. And uh, it's true. I mean, I, uh, I did a recent uh, interview with another podcaster I really, uh, really enjoy, C.J. Kilmer of Dangerous History. And he's not a fan of FDR for you know, more political reasons, but he and I both agree that FDR was probably, uh, regardless of what you think of his policies, probably the best presidential communicator of the 20th century, namely because of how he did those addresses. And I would not be surprised if Zelensky is uh, historically literate enough to understand the power of that. It might just be an instinct at this point to a world leader, but for him to be making these addresses is a very smart move. Um, and, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that what it got reduced to, at least in the United States was Twitter <laughs> under our previous president, but it's sort of the same kind of principle there, but what to f stay focused on world war two, I would say that the, the communication aspect of it is a very, uh, I think it's appreciated at least in, you know, history nerd circles, but there, there is an element of it not being appreciated enough. Uh, I actually just started watching uh, Darkest Hour, finally. It took me a long time to get to it, but it's on Netflix over here now, so I started watching it. And I was very struck by how that movie really seems like it, it gets that. It really wants to sell the notion that communication, especially Churchill's communication, was so important. Um, in a way, that older movie from about 10 years ago called The King's Speech kind of suggested that, too. So I would actually even maybe even posit that British culture is much more adept at uh, like communicating that that kind of communication was so important to the morale, as you put it, of uh, the, at least the British people in World War II. But you, we obviously cannot underestimate how powerful Nazi propaganda was within their borders and outside of them. I mean, we I actually studied uh, film studies in college as well as a number of other subjects, yeah. history included. And uh, we we had to watch Triumph of the Will, and it is a great piece of cinema. Whether whatever you say about what it's actually saying, which is pretty horrifying, it's an amazing piece of propaganda because it's so well made. So there there is that aspect of it that needs to be appreciated. I think. Mm. I must admit, it's not 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 a film which I've seen, but um, just just to come back to to Britain, don't paint us all with the Churchill brush in terms of our eloquence. Um, he of course. was um, a, a generational leader, um, or let's say a once-in-a-century leader who was the right man at the right time, and he knew how to take a message and to distill mm -hmm. it in a way which the British people uh, utterly uh, understood. And... Um, like me, a dyslexic. But anyway, uh, he's much more eloquent <laughs> than me. <laughs> much more eloquent than me. Um, 
I want to pivot to, to Eastern Europe because it's definitely mm. somewhere where I think with our Western bias, whether we're French, American, British, or even German, we mm -hmm. kind of forget how messy the Balkans actually was. And you, you mentioned Finland before. And, and Finland is the one democracy who finds itself um, allied with Nazi Germany. And everybody gives it a pass because they're fighting the Russians who attacked them in the Winter War of 1939. But yes, one of the things which I find utterly fascinating about the war in the Balkans is many of those countries who end up fighting with the Germans didn't want to. They were utterly coerced. Mm -hmm. Hungary mm -hmm. is a great example. The Hungarians were dragged kicking and screaming into an alliance with the Germans. And also the Bulgarians. The Bulgarians don't even declare war uh, against Russia. But the Germans yes. uh, basically, you know, just walk into the country and say it's, it's, it's this way or no way. Um, can you, can you speak, to, speak to us about maybe some of those countries who find themselves fighting on the same side as the Nazis, who were totally coerced into it. Because it's definitely one of the, I think, the forgotten aspects of this conflict. Yes, uh, and this is going to be interesting because I haven't talked about this in any public way yet because I haven't fully gotten to that part of the story that I'm going to be covering later on this year. So this is interesting. Uh, what's so... Uh, it's really hard to explain other than what Germany did specifically to what was then Yugoslavia was they went in and they just, they basically liquidated the state itself and then set up, tried to set up puppet states everywhere. But in, in reality, all they did was support one of the many ethnicities in Yugoslavia, namely the Croats. And by doing that, they propped up probably one of the worst dictators in European history and caused a lot of, you know, invisible wreckage down the line, of course, but that's a whole other story. But what they did by dissolving the state like that was they revealed all of the internal divisions that had already existed for hundreds of years in that part of the world, namely the divisions between Serbs, Croats, uh, Bosniaks, and so forth. And in a way, if you want to look at a good analog, it's sort of what happened when the United States invaded Iraq and exposed, by dissolving their state, exposed all of the fractions within the different uh not ethnic groups, but the uh, religious divisions specifically between Sunni and Shia. But in the case of Yugoslavia, it was far more complicated because there, it was ethnic and religious and there were far more uh, factions there. So basically what by liquidating the state and creating and exposing these divisions and giving opportunity in a way for these, you know, different groups to find some um, self-determination for once, what they essentially did was they opened the door for uh, these weaker powers to be exploited by them, which it's hard not to see that as part of partly by design. And uh, it should be noted that Stalin tried to take advantage of that too, though he found he didn't have a uh, as much control over uh, Joseph Bros Tito than he probably would have liked. Tito is notorious for being one of the few communist leaders of that era to basically thumb his nose at Stalin and live to tell the tale. So what I'm basically saying, though, I think, is that when you do something like that, you are essentially making it a case that 
you're making it the case that you can't really say no when a power like the Nazis comes in and says, you're going to fight for us right now because, you know, uh, but at the same time, the Nazis, by the time they started using the people of Yugoslavia, namely the Muslims, they were using them because they were desperate at that point. They were losing the war by then. So they had some weird leaders like Heinrich Himmler who had this bizarre ideological like affinity, what he saw as an affinity towards Islam. Uh, so that's why he hyped up the, uh, the Muslim aspect of it. But in reality, the, most of those men, yeah, they were coerced into fighting a lot of the time. They were fighting because they wanted to defend their homeland from the Soviets. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. But to say that they were loyal to uh, the, the Hitler's regime is, is a mistake, I would say. It is much more complicated. The real, quote unquote, Muslim Nazis, which I have to admit, you know, right, right off the bat here, was always an ironic title because there really weren't any except for a very select group of people who uh, were very much sucked into that over, like um, uh, Hajimin al-Husseini from Palestine, for example. Uh, they were animated by their hatred of Jews, hence why they took up with the Nazis in that case. You know, I, I, I'd completely forgotten uh, uh, about him. Uh, uh, but there, mm. there was also some some Tartars, weren't there? There were some Tartars who yes. ended up... Yeah. So the Tartars are an ethnic group who are in, in the Crimea, who mm-hmm. see the Germans when the Germans invade Ukraine and take over uh, Crimea. Because actually the Crimea is part of the, part of the Russian Federation then. So uh, let, let, mm-hmm. let, let's divide that up. So when the Russians... Um, invade Crimea, see them as liberators against not only the Russians, but also the Soviets. Exactly. We have this really messy picture, um, an ethnic picture, of which you've, you've painted a really vivid picture of how ethnic, uh, historical ethnic rivalries and animosities, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Germans can then use that and then co-opt, let's say, um, some Muslim Bosnians uh, to fight with, fight with them um, and then there are partisan Serbs who they are then uh, try, try, trying to tamp down. Exactly. America, if we, if we, get, if we move, move from Europe and we're going to push this out kind of globally, um, America, Americans, I don't this is a gross oversimplification, but let's say Americans always see that their role is to come in and to get the job done. Um, and obviously... Um, America doesn't actually uh, go to war until it's attacked on um, September the 7th, 1941. Right, uh, oh, December 7th, yeah. That the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Thank, thank you for the, the correction. That's what you get for when you're just doing this stuff off the top of your head and with no notes. You, you, <laughs> the little slip of the tongue then I said September, of course, I meant December. Um, of course, yeah. Can you give us a sense of the, the, the kind of the build-up to that conflict? Because lots of historians would say, uh, well, they, they do say 
that um, Japan had no way around this if they needed oil because there was an embargo mm-hmm. uh, from the Americans. Um, you know, that attack, yes, the Americans weren't expecting it, but it didn't come completely out of nowhere, did it? Um, there is, in effect, a, a cold war, an economic cold war, and a slow tightening of the noose around uh, the empire of Japan by the Americans previously. Yes, and I, I, it, I actually haven't studied that part of the conflict from the American perspective uh, as much as I would like. But, uh, but I think as you characterize it as a conflict that was a economic cold war, was very much uh, is very much what it was, and I think it the we can debate. I mean, I, I will let the real historians debate uh, how deliberate or earnest this was, but it was a response to Japan's imperial expansion into China, which we considered uh, their nationalists, the allies of the United States at that point, and we very much didn't like that. And honestly, had Japan not gone into its imperialist expansion mode so rapidly in the nineteen 19- 30s. Uh, we were talking about actually beginning dates of uh, World War II. Some historians like uh, Neil Ferguson, for example, have stated that 1937 is a good start date because that's when Japan invaded, uh, uh, when Japan invaded uh, China, Manchuria specifically. And I think uh, that, um, that, but that is very true that even though uh, it was a surprise attack at Pearl Harbor, it would be a little disingenuous for someone to think that there wasn't going to be some kind of repercussion. Now, how much of that was expected to have occurred at Pearl Harbor specifically? It's hard to say. There's a lot of conspiracy theories here about, you know, it it goes as far as like, you know, Roosevelt letting it happen. I don't buy into that. I mean, but I can't really comment one way or another because I haven't actually looked at that evidence, but it seems unlikely. It seems though to me that, the idea that it was a complete surprise that we were attacked in some way is a little naive. I think we definitely knew what we were doing. And I think it was in a sense for, you know, good reason because we knew that Japan was, had some very uh, disturbing ambitions when it came to how they were expanding into Asia. And it wasn't all altruistic for sure, but by then, by 1941, it was very clear to the rest of the world how they had been treating the Chinese, especially in places like Nanking. Very disturbing. In some of the, in some ways, the most disturbing aspect of the Second World War, at least to me. Um, so I think that there was this notion that if we don't do something, if we don't stop them from this behavior, that we will uh, th- that we will pay the price, la- the moral price later. So I don't know, that's speculation on my part, but I think that we should always consider that there was a sort of humanitarian impulse to um, uh, towards China, I think, with how, how Japan was treating them. And we didn't want to see that expansion, uh, you know, move any further. For, for people in the audience and, and for people lis- listening to this, this podcast, um, the rape of Nanking is just one of the, the largest stains on imperial japan and um i they go in and they kill is it like eighty thousand uh two hundred fifty thousand wow it's it's just yeah. it's a phenomenal figure and we're talking hand to hand you know we're not talking yeah. about aerial bombing here the japanese army uh goes on a real tear of 
biblical proportions um, in, in Nanking, which was the uh, Chinese capital at, at, at the time. Uh, the, the, the Nanking massacre, the rape of Nan, Nanking or Nanjing is just one of the most, you, you just can't imagine the brutality w w which actually went on. And it's an interesting point if, it's, if we're talking about uh, forgotten themes um, that you said that Neil Ferguson um, says that the Second World War starts in 1937 when the Japanese um, invade China. And this is after the taken Manchuria in the early 1930s. And one of the things which we, we do forget most people forget, but if you're Ethiopian, you don't, is that in 1935, the Italians attack and conquer Ethiopia. And and we have Haile Selassie then goes to the League of Nations and gives an impassioned speech, which gets broadcast all throughout the world. And it's the final death nail to, to the League of Nations because there is no Security Council. There is nothing uh, which, which the world does. Uh, but when World War II does start and Italy formally does start and Italy and Britain are at war, one of the first things that the British do is to is to take back um, British Somaliland and, and Ethiopia and Ethiopia is actually liberated. So, you know, th this is one of the one one of the fascinating things about World War II, depending on who the belligerent is, the date of when it starts. Is completely different as opposed to World Absolutely. War I, where I think most people accept it's 1914. You know, is it 1935, 37, 39, or 41? Is it June or December 41? You know, it, it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an, an utterly a fascinating thing uh, to try and work out. Let's rush all the way now to um, the to. One of the classic points, one of the classic turning points in Europe, anyway, is the the, the Battle of, of Stalingrad, and you've spoken oh, yes. a lot about your influence for, from Dan Carlin, and you know he did a whole series of podcasts, Ghosts of the, of the Eastern Front, um, which you can't get a more macho battle conflict um, than, than that. There is something truly... It's, it's, we've said at the start that the, the thing about World War II is it's the ultimate Hollywood movie when it comes to a, a, a conflict because the bad guys are so bad. Yes. And then there are dastardly deals which countries have to make to survive. So Finland... A democracy ends up fighting with with the Nazis because the Russians have attacked them before Poland um, gets annihilated, and there are these. Ro it's all played up these romantic scenes of um, the Polish cavalry charging towards Panzer tanks. Yes, it happened, but it gets really played up in the whole kind of mythos of the the defeat of Poland, the Polish. Air Force um, escapes to Romania and then actually flies to, to Britain to continue the fight. And those Polish airmen can never, ever go back to Poland because then Poland at the end of the war becomes communist. And on a personal note, I lived when I, in the 1970s, um, I lived um, four doors down from an old Polish gentleman who was a Polish uh, Air Force 
Man, who can no never kidding. go home. Wow. And I just remember this, this lovely old gentleman with the wonderful droopy moustache. And when you're five and six, you don't realise the significance. It's only much older I realised he was one of these Polish airmen who could never go home. You know, mm-hmm. he flew his plane from Romania with the rest of the Polish Air Force to Britain, but could never go home. And there's so, so many of these fascinating, wonderful, evocative stories that World War II throws up. But the Battle of Stalingrad is um, a real test of the brutality and the inhumaneness of humanity and our sense of endurance that men can fight against overwhelming odds. Have you, have you, have you, have you covered um, Stalingrad at all with your podcast? I have not. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, uh, my, my current focus, well, my, my current current focus has been these sort of like side stories to World War II, these figures and uh, characters that have been, that are related to uh, the Nazis in some way or another. Um, but besides that, most of my uh, war history that I've been focusing on has been the Balkans, not uh, the Soviet Union. However, like you say, Stalingrad is iconic for anybody who studies World War II. And I, to be perfectly honest, if I ever wanted to do a podcast about it, I don't know where I'd start. Um, I do want to say the Polish uh, Air Force story you just related there, you just put that idea in my head. I'm probably going to have to cover it at some point. I'll see if I can find time to do it. That is such an incredible story. Um, But uh, no, I I have not covered uh, Stalingrad in any great detail. The closest thing to it was I did do an episode very early on on the Winter War in Finland, uh, specifically from the perspective of the greatest sniper of all time, Simo Haiha, who uh, is purported to have killed, I want to say, 500 some uh, Soviet soldiers. So, um, that, that, But that's like the closest to the Eastern Front I've actually gotten so far with what I've studied. We'll reverse out of Stalingrad, but enemy at the gates uh, with Jude Law is a wonderful yes. film um, yes. in terms of just understanding uh, that Stalin basically says, we're not going to retreat anymore. Um, Hitler says, we're going to take this city. And those Germans say, uh, the generals say, why? You know, it's strategically not that important, but it's Stalingrad. And Hitler wants the city with Stalin's name on it. And yes. this scene where the Russians don't have enough guns. And the first wave is told by the commissars to attack and the Germans just mow them down with, uh, with, the, with the machine gun fire. And the next wave of Russians have no guns, but are told to pick up the guns of the fallen troops and to, to attack with those. It's just, you know, it's just utterly unbelievable. Utterly unbelievable. It's a great um, film. Yeah. It, 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 it's a great film, and, and it just shows you the, the, the lengths and the depths that uh, the combatants went through in that theatre. And in that battle alone, uh, was it two million uh, men fought um, over, you know, in less than a year? In six months, two million men. And, and, I, I, and when the Germans surrender... In February, when von Paulus gives up, I think it's 250 million German troops are then marched away when they surrender. And 
little known fact, 15,000 was all that ever returned back to Germany. And they didn't mm. come back until the mid 1950s. 15,000, they were worked to death in Soviet camps. And von Paulus, the commander, actually becomes a communist and is a mouthpiece for the Russians for the rest of the world, for the rest of the war. It's the most phenomenal story. So um, I don't know what, how you're going to start this, um, Alexander, but, but you need to, because it, it's yeah. one of those stories which has been told, but there's always a new element uh, when it comes to Stalingrad. Of course, uh, yeah. Miriam, uh, you, 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 you've joined us on stage. Um, I'm just speaking to Alexander uh, von Sternberg. And, and thank you to everybody who's in the audience listening to our conversation. Uh, this is, um, before I come to you, Miriam, this is um, me doing one of my ad hoc rooms, uh, which I call intelligent speech, when I just speak to somebody about something I want to talk about, basically. Uh, but I'm also interviewing Alexander for my uh, monthly column, which I do for podcast magazine when I interview history podcasters. So that's what you're all listening to today. And it's so great that 24 of you decided to come and listen to our conversation about World War II. Uh, Miriam, a uh, good friend of mine on the app. Uh, do you have a question or a point, Miriam? First of all, it's fa fantastic what you're doing. And it's it's so, you know, interesting because we were just in the room uh, talking about the change of, you know, of position of Turkey regarding, um, you know, Finland and um, joining mm. European Union. And it, it, there were these motifs of Second World War that we were discussing there. And it just hit me, you know, this this kind of we are talking right now about, you know, this this issues and and so many like Ukraine, you know, resonate back and forth with different countries that are now making decisions with, on which side to stand. So so it's so interesting uh, to kind of be in there. And also, I just wanted I jumped in when you were talking about Polish, uh, uh, Polish. I'm from Poland. I'm from Polish. Um, uh, army members and uh, and staying in Great Britain. Great Britain became a, such an important country after the Second World War for Poland. Uh, you know, Poland was always uh, it became like very you know uh, influenced by United States and and England after the Second World War especially. And and I wrote in the chat on the side that there was actually entire Polish government uh, on, on exile. Uh, in Great yes. Britain, right after, which is also a fascinating phenomenon. One of those forgotten themes of the of the conflict, isn't it, Alexander? That so many of those governments in exile went to yes, Britain. the uh, the original um, uh, government of Yugoslavia was in Britain, I believe. Absolutely, and um, the current claimant to the throne of Yugoslavia, um, his family actually. Um, were domiciled, uh, ended up being domiciled in Notting Hill, where I used to live in London. But, no kidding. Uh, the, 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 the rule of succession, the rule of succession for Yugoslavia was that um, the heir needed to be born on Yugoslavian territory. Mm. He wasn't. He was born in something like Claridge's or a really posh hotel in London. So there's an act of parliament that that room where he was born was actually Yugoslav territories to, to help the line of succession. There's all these <laughs> wonderful, quirky stories uh, around, around World War II. And, and, and just to link this all back to the Ukrainian uh, war, number one, there's the uh, Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, which is Kaliningrad, which was East Prussia. 
um, which um, when the borders get redrawn after World War II is then divided between uh, Russia or the Soviet Union and Poland. So that's why there is that Russian enclave and that, and we've heard in the news this week that Lithuania has stopped um, importation of certain goods which the EU has banned into the Russian enclave, direct uh, result of, of World War II. Finland now joining NATO. There was a whole period of, um, uh, um, of Russification, which was even though Finland post-World War II was, was still nominally independent and a republic, uh, a democracy, sorry, not a republic, a uh, democracy, um, the Soviet Union controlled its foreign policy, so it could not join NATO between 1945 and uh, 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that's the reason why now it's joining NATO. And that's because of the winter war. You know, there's so many ramifications of World War Two, which is still playing out uh, with, within the conflict, which, which we're seeing today. You know what, Alexander, I've done a whole lot of talking here. Why don't you um, tell us about one other thing of World War Two, and we can start to wind this this room down. You take us wherever you want to go, sir. Just one theme, uh, an, un, an unspoken theme, if you will. Oh, or, or a theatre of conflict. It doesn't have to be a theme. Oh, a theater. We, can, we can stretch I... the word theme here. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, an, a recent episode I did uh, that, uh, that I had a lot of fun doing, despite the fact that the central figure was a truly detestable character, which seems to be something I do a lot, <laughs> is I find some of the worst people and I end up profiling them. Uh, was uh, how Nazism found itself tangled up with, or the Nazis, I should say, but it was more Nazism on the philosophical end, ended up tied up with a lot of Hindu nationalism. Not necessarily the Gandhi type, but the Subhas Chandra Bose type, who did indeed lead a, uh, a, a sort of Indian legion uh, fighting alongside Germany, and then eventually along, well, it wasn't alongside Germany because Germany was obviously very racist and didn't really want to associate with him. So then he ended up fighting alongside the Japanese and there, and actually Carlin and Carlin did cover that in uh, one of his recent episodes that he did that was very interesting. But what I just found so fascinating about that story and the central figure I was referring to a, um, the, uh, I was trying to get her ethnicity right. She was a Greco French woman of British ancestry, I believe, uh, named, who went by the name of Savitri Devi. And she very much w was sort of the, in a way, was sort of the ultimate Nazi in a way. But her way of being an, the ultimate Nazi was tying together Hindu mysticism and Nazi mythology. And what I found so just interesting about that was how, and disturbing, really, I should make that clear, was how she attempted with not that much difficulty to sell Nazism as a spiritual movement more than a political one and turn it into something much more global. And thankfully it didn't go very far, but I think that had more to do with just the Nazis not getting very far. I mean, we, we do tend to forget they were only in power for 12 years, which is a very short time for most powers. Um, so I, I think that like, what I found so interesting about that story was, was indeed like how malleable 
beliefs like that can be and and what kind of strange people can be attracted to them. We see that with any kind of ideology, of course, but uh, the the attraction to that to that belief from someone like Savitri Devi is, I think, emblematic of just how pernicious that ideology at that time was. And, and also, war makes strange bedfellows, doesn't it? To, to, to your point about uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, he is an Indian nationalist. So my enemy's enemy is my friend, and he's an Indian exactly. nationalist. He wants the British to get get out of India. Uh, the Japanese come along and he's like, let's have some of that, Japan. I, I'm supporting the Japanese. But uh, mm-hmm. he finds himself on the wrong side of history uh, when, when you take um, the long view. But his position would have made absolute sense in it, 1939, yes. 41, 42. You know, Absolutely. But, um, his reputation now is somebody who um, cozied up to Nazi Germany and Imperial uh, Japan. Exactly. Yeah, and you can make um, the same argument about Hajimin al-Husseini in Palestine, though I would say he was less motivated. I mean, the more I've read about him, I am less convinced that he was motivated by a marriage of convenience and more motivated by an actual ideological and even spiritual affinity towards the Nazis. I mean, he was primarily motivated, especially by the latter 1930s and into the 1940s, by a hatred of Jews rather than a hatred of the British. He hated the British, but he hated the Jews more. So that's a very interesting sort of different story where you start with the enemy of the of my enemy is my friend, and then just, no, they're just my enemy and my friends are Nazis. Can I ask oh, you a question? Uh, it's, it's such an amazing conversation, and I, I'm sorry I'm cutting in, but uh, I was okay. fascinated fascinated in, in, in with that entire phenomenon of spirituality of Nazism. And I yes. watched some documentaries of dubious <laughs> sources that, <laughs> that but <laughs> yes, but I just want to ask you, maybe, maybe you made more research into it because there was a, so, suggestions in those videos that actually Hitler and people around him were like into very weird occults and, you know, and, and kind of, um, magic even. Do, yes. do you know anything about it? I I do actually. It's f- funny you mentioned that. The episode I'm working on now, I'm happy to announce. I you said this is coming out next month, so maybe I think actually my episodes will be released. It's going to be a two parter about about that specifically about uh, the uh, the Jewish clairvoyant Eric Jan Hanusen, who uh, was sort of you know he palled around with Nazis early on. He didn't make it very far, but you know he did. Uh, he, he did have those inroads. But to answer your question, yes, I think that if you were watching, if I'm just to guess, uh, the American History Channel documentaries, yeah, those are dubious quality, uh, du- of dubious quality, of course. But the important thing to remember is that Hitler was not an occultist by any means. He was very practical. He was very worldly in the sense that he was just concerned about whatever would allow him the the fastest and most secure avenue to power. But then when you start looking into the uh, sort of underlings to Hitler, specifically people like Heinrich Himmler, Alfred Rosenberg, um, uh, Gottlob Berger, these are figures high up in the Nazi hierarchy who are very interested in the occult. I like to focus on Himmler the most because he was very much um, a fan of that, especially if you look at how he 
operated and led the, the Schutzstaffel, the SS. He was very much an occultist. He was very much a neo-pagan in a way, very anti-Christian, as well as being, of course, anti-Jewish. Um, though he did have an interesting, it's hard to explain, but it's there in his diaries. He had an affinity towards Islam, as did Hitler. They seem to have this very romantic, stereotypical view of Islam being a a quote-unquote martial religion, they called it very often, or a religion of men. Like, they were very concerned with masculinity in that context. Um, so that doesn't really fit in with the occult, but they uh, but they just had some very interesting, uh, people like Himmler, I mean, had some very interesting views on things. They uh, Nazism itself sprang from a lot of occult traditions, namely things like theosophy. Uh, the Thule Society is very famous for being an occult group in early, it was like pre-Nazi Germany into the Weimar era, where people were meeting and they had these beliefs that were, a lot of them were derived from uh, Hindu mysticism as well. I mean, the, the, the late 19th century, early 20th century in places like Russia and Germany especially were fascinated. The people were fascinated with the esoteric. And that led to a lot of uh, interest in the occult. It was very... Um, hodgepodge though to be sure it was not something that was very coherent but it's not an overstatement to say that there was an injection of mysticism into the nazi ideology at certain levels thank you so much fascinating and the kind of fascination with hinduism and supposedly aryan culture was another one of the reasons why they adopted the swastika wasn't it, it was absolutely a, this ancient aryan symbol and it just kind of shows you that uh, and you, you paint a really uh, kind of vivid picture of talking about the level of mysticism which some of those um, Nazis actually had. But also, it's an era of pseudoscience, isn't it? You know, yes. Um, you know, measuring measuring the skulls of people to determine how intelligent they were, and theories around race, and how just that the whole thing just becomes more and more kind of ridiculous because the Japanese were given honorary Aryan status, even yes. previously before that, they're inferior people, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's just, again, it's like the things you have to do in war, which makes it an old, makes whole nonsense of a lot, a lot of your theories, whatever. Um, yes. I'm call up Kyle from the audience. Um, just, just, just a quick Quick note, I don't know how much longer you've got, Alexander, but I can talk about World War II all day. So if you leave it to me, I will keep you here on this app talking for the next three hours. So you need to tell me honestly how much time that you have. Uh, and just before you do, if you're in the audience and you've got a question, if I was you, I'd hold your hand up now and, and run up on stage because we don't know how much uh, more room Alexander's got. Alexander, how much, how much more time do you have, sir? I can do a, another like 10 minutes or so. Thank you for checking. Okay, fantastic. 10 is uh, more more than enough. Kyle, cool. Ask your question away, sir. It just came up here. I was going to mention, uh, like the only reason why I raised my hand was because of the Theosophical Society and Madame Vlatsky, um, Rudolf Steiner, um, just uh, the Rosicrucians. Um, a lot of the stuff's very prominent. Um, the, you can even go on the Theosophical Society website and look into the history of the swastika and um, how that symbol has changed over time. And um, yeah, this is, um, I, I just kind of uh, raised my hand, but you brought up the Theosophical Society. And I guess um, Madame Vlatsky had a lot to do with that. 
um, perhaps. And uh, there's a lot of rich history there. And uh, I'll stop talking because um, it's not necessarily in everyone's wheelhouse. But I uh, just wanted to bring up the Rosicrucians and, um, and the uh, Theosophical Society. Well, Kyle, th thank you for, for the education. Alexander? Yeah. Oh, I, of course. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much about the Rosicrucians, but of course, you know, anybody who learns about theosophy learns about <laughs> Madame Helen, uh, Helena Blavatsky. And I also want to make it clear. I don't, I don't want to pin Nazism on Madame Blavatsky or theosophy itself. Uh, what I, what I was hoping I could you know, make clear if I didn't is that the environment that theosophy was thriving in was one driven by a search for meaning through things like the esoteric. It was just, you know, as a as an aside, there was a, a dip in uh, church attendance and, and Christian belief during that time. So it made a lot of sense for people to be turning to uh, fringe ideologies, including ones like communism at the time. Uh, communism was not exempt from uh, this kind of mystical thinking, too. Uh, but it was especially prevalent in Germany. And when you start with something like theosophy, you're going to get other creative people who glob on to the very, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To keep using the word esoteric ideas and then create their own. You have something called ariosophy that comes after theosophy that takes the notions of, I don't want to say that, uh, Blavatsky and Theosophy uses her master race, but they do talk about a race. But then the Ariosophists, like who were, a lot of them were proto-Nazis, they made it into a racial thing. They are the ones who made the quote-unquote Aryans into the uh, the great lost quote-unquote white race that uh, was from, that was uh, found, you know, that, that came deep from the, into the Himalayas and whatnot. They are the ones who basically brought it into the German racist mainstream at that point. Um, so basically, what I'm saying is that when you have esoteric ideas that have a sort of loose structure like that, you're going to get a lot of creative people bringing in their own interpretations that then ultimately pervert the original message, however much is perverted or not. Last thing from me, and take us uh, to June, a day in June in uh, 1944. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I, I really love that clip. Um, because uh, there's Eisenhower just being very businesslike, um, in stark contrast to the eloquence of uh, Churchill, who he plays. Of course, to start, you know, very businesslike. This is what we're going to do, but in concert with our great Russian allies. Uh, it, this is a case of we're coming from the west, and the Russians have a big offensive from the east. And uh, a few months after that, there's going to be the Warsaw Uprising in Poland. But for Miriam, who, who's on stage, 
and um, just a, again, just this tragic uh, Polish um, defeat where the Russians just are just going to uh, pause their advance and watch the Germans put this down. Um, there's a, there's a real sense whether it's through Saving Private Ryan, and we have talked about Stalingrad, but specifically now, let's deal with America, where it's the island hopping that goes on in the Pacific. And then with D-Day, oh, yes. there's a real sense that this is the foundational myth of the golden generation, isn't it? That our, our mm-hmm. grandparents were, uh, you know, our, our grandfathers were, were real men. You know, they had real kind of hardships. Um for those of us who aren't American, could you tell us about that, you know, the myth? And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, uh, but, of course. you know, the, the status of the golden generation um, in American society, of which uh, D-Day is most definitely one of those kind of founding points. Yes, uh, I can actually talk about it personally in the sense that my grandfather was part of, uh, we call it actually the greatest generation here, Um uh, and I, you know, the golden generation, I really like that term, uh, but he was part of that generation. He's since passed, but he uh, was not a D-Day, but he was in the U.S. Army Air Corps and he was a gunner in a B-17. And in 1944, he was flying over Germany and his plane was shot down and he parachuted out. Uh, he broke one of his legs. He made his way to the nearest town after finding out that he was indeed in Germany and he turned himself in. And uh, had they known he was half Jewish, they probably would have treated him a lot worse, but they treated him quite well. And he went to a uh, prison camp for a year. And by the time he left uh, at Liberation in 1945, uh, I believe it was in May, uh, he weighed 90 pounds, which I'm not sure how much that is in kilograms uh, for non-American listeners here. Uh, But he was very... 45. 45. Okay, yeah, so he had lost a lot of weight. Uh, he was never really tall, uh, never never really a tall man, but he had lost a lot of weight. He had been on a starvation diet while in there. And he was released, and then he got home, and, you know, until his dying day, he never wasted a meal ever again. And I tell that story in the way I do to sort of illustrate that's why we do kind of look on that generation with reverence here, is they went through things like that, that no one, or hardly anyone would go through for many decades. You know, Vietnam was its own uh, uh, horror for a lot, for thousands of Americans. I believe it was uh, 68,000 died. I I don't want to inflate that number. Uh, But the difference is with Vietnam, and the difference is with, uh, you know, many years later with uh, Iraq and the war on terror, Uh, is that those wars aren't seen widely as noble and heroic. It ties into what we were talking about very early on in this conversation about how Hollywood-ready, in a way, World War II is, how epic it is, how uh, morally clear it seems to be, at least at face value, compared to those other conflicts that are associated with America losing a lot of face over the course of almost 100 years now. Um, Well, I shouldn't say 100 years, but it's going on 100 and it's um it's and i think that because we are able to look at world war ii with such moral clarity that the men who fought in it are going to be given the same treatment like my grandfather uh 
uh, and people like him who were held prisoner, who, you know, were able to survive the landings at D-Day, who I can't even imagine the ones who took part in the island hopping. I mean, that sounds like some of the most brutal fighting that Americans took part in during World War II, as best I can tell. So I think that that's the best way to uh, to sort of understand it, like where that myth comes from, is that we we see it as being sort of the end of moral clarity for the conflicts that we got ourselves involved in. Alexander von Sternberg. I, I, I have to ask you about your surname. You sound sure. like, a, like a Prussian general. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're sort of uh, part of the Juncker class or something. But um, tell us about your, your very aristocratic sounding surname. Well, the thing is, it's fake aristocratic. There's no, there's no von Sternberg family. Uh, there are a lot of people named von Sternberg for various reasons. Uh, I might be related to them in some distant way. We have a famous filmmaker from the silent era here named Josef von Sternberg, who was a, uh, a German immigrant as well, uh, a German Jewish immigrant like my, my ancestor was who came here in the 1870s. Um, and I, we don't know the details, but when he arrived, uh, he was a um, uh, he was by himself. He was uh, 19 years old. We were able to find his uh, his immigration record at Ellis Island. Uh, he was, but yeah, he was by himself. He listed himself as an entrepreneur. We don't know why he came here. He just probably just looking for a way to you know get a better life. He came shortly after the uh, unification of Germany, um, but he came also at a time when you know anti-Semitism was much more common. So he likely. Like this is what our my my sort of family uh, uh, historian of sorts, it, uh, my a second cousin of mine, she suspects that it was an effort to make himself sound less Jewish. He wanted to sound a little fancier, maybe. I mean, this is all speculation. We don't know, but essentially, the surname was made up. His name was likely just Sternberg or Steinberg when he uh, came over. So he basically created an identity for himself, and it just kind of stuck with my family ever since. Well, it works. I, you know, I thought you were posh. I thought seriously, you know, you, you, you were some Prussian uh, Junker class. Um, yeah. it, 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 well, it, it's a it's a wonderful surname. Go on, sorry. Well, thank you. I, and I got to tell you, there is a town in Germany called Sternberg, but it's like this little tiny town on the border with Poland in northeast Germany. That's maybe like three thousand people. It's not, you know, as far as I know, there's no royalty in that town. So it would be a, quite a coincidence if I went there and I found out I was royalty because I don't think it's ever been the case. The funniest thing is that when I saw your name, I right away knew that you have Jewish roots. So this yeah. is so interesting. Yeah, Sternberg means Star Mountain. It's a uh, yeah. The family, uh, the family crest has a Star of David on it. So yeah. <laughs> it's like oh my gosh. Okay, very nice. Uh, that's so funny. And for me, that's nobility. I'm sorry. Maybe that sounds racist, but uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It, I'm very. It, it, it it is the von bit though, isn't it? Von of. Yes. That's the thing. That that's aristocratic. You know, saying that you are it's off very aristocratic. Yes, yeah, uh, correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just thinking about my mom when you were talking about your grandfather. Uh, I was talking. I was thinking about my mom, who was a child during the both uprisings, also in the ghetto, ghetto, in 1943 and then 1944 in Warsaw. And I just wonder what would happen to her if did indeed Russian army come into Poland and into Warsaw, seeking you know Warsaw has two parts. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit now. I'm looking for a quieter place. Warsaw has west and, and east part, 
and uh, w basically uh, the left, actually we call it left and right part of Warsaw, mm -hmm. and the entire city, most of the city, is on the right part of, of uh, on the right uh, uh, side of Vistula, uh, Vistula River, and the left, uh, on the left side, and on the right side, it's a small, t smaller town, uh, much poorer. And paradoxically, that part survived because Russian army was there and Nazi did not touch it. And the most interesting is that the Spielmann movie, you know, the, the, the movie about the, the pianist, very famous movie, oh, very beautiful uh, one. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Spielmann? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That movie was actually filmed on the left part of Warsaw, on the right part of Warsaw, sorry, on the right part of Warsaw, because that part survived. And it had buildings from the time, with basically, obviously not as fancy as they were on the on the on the left side, which was you know which was the center, the capital, most one of the most beautiful cities in Poland, if not uh, outside. And that was almost totally ruined, but mm -hmm. and re some parts rebuilt after the war, which is kind of funny, funny story. Uh, but rebuilt like to old town is like rebuilt basically from pictures. So it's a, some people think mm -hmm. that it's a little fake. But the, 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 the buildings on the Praga, which is not Prague, but Praga Warszawska, <laughs> we call it, those buildings yeah. survived because of the Russian army was there. And like, and I was thinking, I said, such a mix, so many emotions, you know, when you just mentioned that, you know, for me, it just resonated in so many memories of my mom taking me around and showing, oh, this is where we were, and this is where we, you know, stayed during the, the war, and this is where we were, like, this is what happened, and this is where our store was, and, you know, and I have just so many memories from those, from this you know, this, you know, Warsaw Uprising is, is such an incredible and complicated history because the historians actually, some many uh, actually criticize uh, Poland for Polish uh, uh, heroes or Polish, uh, I don't know how to call them, who created that uprising for, for causing so many civilian life loss. And if the Russian army would, uh, Soviet army would actually enter, I don't know what would be happening because they weren't famous for treating civilians with respect, if you know what I mean. No, so it's I, a yes. yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so this is like, um, you know, such a This is this is such a, you know, when we're talking about forgotten ten teams of the Second World War in Poland, obviously, Warsaw Uprising is a huge deal. But I don't know how many people outside of Poland really understands. The, the city, the story, the children who were, you know, members of the military at that time, who were taking, you know, my mom was asked by one of the soldiers, you know, to bring a, a letter from one side of the, of the street to another. And there was, a, you know, shooting combat in, you know, going through this narrow street. And my mom was, you know, at that time, when she was nine years old, you know, she was too scared, and there was another kid that just, you know, took the letter and jumped through the street, you know, without any, like, hesitation. My mom had, I'm also dyslexic, by the way, and I am, I think you, Roy Field, you are incredibly, incredibly outspoken, and I'm always in absolutely all of your English, you know, vocabulary, and so my mama was also a little bit dyspraxic. She was afraid that because she didn't have such a great experience with her own, she couldn't trust her own legs, uh, you know. But these kids just jump over. There were thousands of children who were fighters. So you know, you know, all the it's, it's incredible 
rich uh, story which which I don't think is being talked about uh, enough and uh, outside not, of Poland. Definitely not in the in the United States. Definitely not. I mean, people in World War Two uh, circles, like people who study World War Two, definitely know more about it than the average citizen. But that gets into a whole subject that it fills me with so much frustration and even sometimes rage when I see the, uh, the polling statistics like recently, I think it was a couple of years ago, the Washington post ran a poll or reported on a poll. I want to say that said that around two thirds of young Americans, I think the cutoff point was about 35 years of age that around two thirds of young Americans don't even know what the Holocaust is and, and, and know nothing about it. And that speaks to historical illiteracy in in so many ways that really frustrates me and obviously I, I you know that's partly why so many of us in the history podcasting space do what we do but I think it's also just because we want to tell stories but it's also so we can make it a little more palatable to learn about history I mean I'd like to think so um, the uh, the but the 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 lack of knowledge on on certain things is definitely very frustrating over here. And I, I've heard similar things in England. I don't know if anyone can speak to that, but that I you know there was a famous clip that went viral at least here in America of I think it was a British reality TV star or TikTok star or something. He was like 22 and he like was on a British news uh, show where he said, "Why should we be learning about the Holocaust? It's just people are too anxious and depressed already." And I'm just thinking, like okay, <laughs> how does that help anybody? But uh, yeah, so that that's sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of censoring myself what I actually said when that happened. I was very angry, but it's it's one of those things though that really brings up a lot of frustration in me when I, when I hear about that lack of knowledge. Alexander, maybe um, we've got your next uh, uh, project for your podcast. Maybe it's the Warsaw Uprising then. Might have um, to be. Here's some quick stats before we wind this, this this room up. So the Warsaw Uprising is approximately 60 days, August to <laughs> October. And uh, I think it's uh, 200,000 Polish civilians died in 60 days. A lot of this is hand-to-hand fighting with the Russian army just perched outside the city. The Russians just say, we let the Germans uh, deal with this. 25% of the city is already levelled from the previous uprising, which Miriam said um, uh, the year before. In that uprising alone, another 25% of Warsaw is flattened. And then when the Germans have defeated the the home front, the home army, uh, the civilian army, they flatten another 35% of Warsaw in reprisals you know any block any street that the germans think have collaborated uh with the uprising they flatten that so by the end of it 80 to 90 percent of warsaw is flattened that is just a a level of the devastation and all the while the russian red army is just waiting um miles outside saying, let's let the Germans do this with the Poles. They'll punch themselves out. They'll weaken the Germans, and then we'll go in. You know, it's incredibly cynical. It's incredibly callous. Heroic. Yeah, it's callous. What, what, the, what the Russians do is barbaric what the Germans do. And, mm-hmm. and it's utterly futile because 
the the, the Polish uprising is because the Russians are uh, are coming to liberate, and but they, but the Poles want to be in control of their own destiny, so they have this uprising, this home army, which for years has been slowly gathering together the material whilst they've been occupied by the Germ- Germans and have this uh, heroic uprising. Two hundred thousand people died in in two months. You just you, you just you know you just you literally cannot imagine the privations and Miriam told us a little bit about so you know just to send a letter from one side of the street to another there were children's running because you know adults couldn't because 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 they'd be killed you know yeah. anyway Alexander von Sternberg who's not aristocratic not part <laughs> right tell us about your podcast tell all the people who who've uh, listened uh, to us talk for the last hour and a half about your podcast and also the people listening to this podcast as well and tell and tell them um uh where they can find it all right uh well uh, the podcast is called history impossible uh it can be listened to on as best i can tell any platform out there spotify apple podcasts um podcast addict seems to be something people use a lot uh but it's all over the place um a good way to support it is to go to patreon obviously that's a great way to um uh, help keep the show going. Um, I'm about to actually take this show full time or much more full time, uh, because, you know, my current day job is just not doing its job paying the bills. So I'm, uh, I, I really want to put more focus on the podcast itself. So yeah, uh, Patreon is a good way to support it, uh, financially. People can, uh, also help it by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, like you said at the beginning, there's about 182 reviews now, I want to say. So if I can get that over 200, that would be ideal. Um, yeah, I, I'm really uh, I'm looking forward to releasing my next episode or episodes. because, Like I said, it's going to be a two-parter and that's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. Uh, again, Alexander von Sternberg, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. Uh, thank you to everybody else who, who's in the audience. Um, Alexander, if, if you if you need to uh, jump off, uh, feel free now. I can keep this room open if anybody wants to talk about uh, World War II type things uh, for another 10, 15 minutes. Uh, feel free to hold your hand up, come on stage. Uh, we can keep this going for, for a little bit. I must admit, it's a, a conflict which I, I always do come back to, and there's always so much more to learn about it uh, it's one of the things i said to alistair uh, alexander sorry um was um how um we kind of do forget how many countries were coerced into um having to fight with the germans the hungarians didn't want to uh but were given a, an ultimatum with, with german troops um at the border the bulgarians also Fundamentally, the Romanians didn't didn't even really want to as well. It's just a, a, a it's a conflict which, um, to say it was global it, it is is putting it mildly. Uh, but the twists and the turns and the ramifications of uh, countries becoming uh, belligerents on one side or another um, is, is is definitely something of which um, there'll never be an end to the literature written about uh, this, this conflict. Um, but Alexander, nor should there be. That's that's where I would. That's that's how I'd like to end end my uh, participation here. Is that there should never be an end to talking about it. It's too interesting. <laughs> it, it, it is too. It is uh, way too uh, too interesting. And and yes. as I kind of made um, the links 
between the co- current conflict in um, in Ukraine, there are so many direct links from that conflict which are still being played out now. Kilaningrad, Konigsberg is just the most obvious one. Um, Finland uh, not being part of NATO, but now the Turks giving them uh, saying that yes, they'll they can accede to be part of NATO. Sweden being non-aligned. Uh, that's because the Germans needed the iron ore uh, for, for, from Sweden. And then Sweden played a crucial part um, as being a, a non-belligerent in that war, um, putting um, messages between uh, not the Nazi high command, who knew, specifically Himmler, who knew that the Germans were going to lose in the last year. He routed them all the way through a Swedish diplomats who then were speaking to the West. And of course, the allergy says, no, unconditional surrender. Himmler said, what about this? What about, nope, unconditional surrender. Sweden plays uh, an integral part, but because it was uh, neutral in World War uh, One and Two, Sweden has never been part of NATO. But now, because of the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, sees that its security needs to be under a wider security blanket. Uh, the Poles and their distrust of the Russians is very obviously them because the Russians then come in at the end of, of the war. And there is no way that the um, legitimate government in exile, which is in London, can actually come back and they install their own uh, communist government. Uh, so that's another reason why the Poles uh, are wary of the Russians. It just goes on and on and on. But uh, I'm going to close this room down in approximately 30 seconds unless somebody holds their hand up and uh, runs up on stage and has got a point. Um, just quickly, I, I just want to thank you um, for this room. It was amazing. Um, you know, Alexander, really um, enjoyable to listen to. The knowledge and how articulate you both are is incredible. Um, there's something that, that came to my mind um, while mm-hmm. I was listening that I just wanted to share, and that's... Uh, Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. Uh, there are some episodes in there that go on about World War II that are a little bit um, um, less commonly understood, um, especially in America, and uh, it might be a, a good source to look into. Um, one of the points that kind of sat with me um, that I understand that just came to my mind was um, do you know who out of the Allies lost uh, the most amount of lives out of any other country? Oh, by far, it's the Russians. There's hands down. Exactly. It's the Russians. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how, um, you know, the sacrifice that they made for the Allies and then the conflict that we're into today um, due to, like, the Cold War history after World War II and how interesting that is as well. Um but that, that documentary on Netflix is really good and very grateful for the two of you sharing your time and energy. So thank you. Uh, uh, thank, thank you, Carl. We do forget the psychological impact that the brutality of the fighting and the losses that the Russians experienced, how that has shaped uh, the Russian view of security, of other invasions from from the West, uh, NATO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a reason why Putin keeps on talking about the denazification of Ukraine. That is, in large part, propaganda. 
but it also does have echoes to the Ukrainian um, freedom fighters who allied themselves to the Nazis when the Nazis invaded in June 1941. It's a direct callback to the Great Patriotic War, which is what the Russians called World War II, when they were fighting an existential fight for their survival against, uh, against Nazism. So it's a callback. And uh, is it May the 8th, May the 9th? I forget exactly uh, the day, but the, but the day when the Russians celebrate victory over Nazi Germany is a big deal. You know, that's when we see the uh, the parades where outside of the, the Kremlin and in Red Square, uh, we see all the soldiers marching and all of the um, military hardware and the tanks and, and whatever because the Russians were fighting for something uh, much more rooted in survival than the French or the British. When the Germans invaded France, yes, they wanted to defeat France. They didn't want to wipe France off the map. They didn't. The Germans did not say, oh, let's say the Nazis. The Nazis did not say that the French were untermenschen, that these were not humans, these were subhuman. The Russians were. So when the Russians, when the the Germans invade Russia, the commanders are told and then they tell the soldiers the normal rules of war do not apply here because these people are subhuman. So that's the reason why uh, the Russians lose 20 million civilians in that war. And that's civilians. That's people you talk about the soldiers, 20 million civilians, you know, Um, in Britain. I think we lose something like 150,000, and that's all combatants. So it just shows you the losses that the Russians had to deal with are completely dwarfed by the American losses, by the French, the Italian, etc. They're fighting for their survival as people because the Germans said, we're going to wipe them out. And it's all explicit in Mein Kampf that Hitler says when he writes Mein Kampf in the 1920s, we need to empty this land in the east. Funny enough, enough, actually, the majority of it in Ukraine, in the Ukraine, as it was then called, because the, the the ground is so fertile that that's going to become the breadbasket for Germany. And then what we'll do when we've wiped out all of the people, these untermenschen, these subhuman people, then we'll move German colonists in. And I think Alexander um, might have slightly mentioned this when he was talking about uh, the Nazis and uh, uh, and um, uh, the propagation of the German race. And one of the things which, which the Nazis re- really believed in is that women, German women, were there to be not only mothers, but kind of like super mothers, and have lots of kids because we need they needed to, they need to be more Aryan. Germans, and then they're all going to go go east. So it, it, it's a good point, Kyle. That it not that it excuses the Russian invasion of Ukraine doesn't excuse it at all. But we need to appreciate the psychological um, perspective of the Russian people who fought for the existential survival eighty odd years ago. You know the brutality 
that 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 the uh, that the Germans wreaked uh, uh, upon them, and then the Russians uh, then were incredibly then cynical when they then marched west uh, when they in inverted commas liberated bits of Europe when they occupied bits of Europe and created their uh, security buffer. Yeah, I just want to add a point to that. Uh, maybe point of question or a little nuance, because my sense was that for Soviet Russia, actually the fact that this war was so brutal was actually a political point, that they were trying to prove something and they were actually sending people to death on purpose, because my father was in one of those units that were designated to be killed off, and he was so survivor after he got uh, extremely wounded uh, so um, so he was only person who survived from his entire unit and then the, the job that basically that uh, Soviet government took I mean we're talking about Stalin Stalin who did not blink an eye of killing people around in his close circle you know, um, he did not blink an eye on, on, on that number. So I just wonder how much that was the strategy to begin with. And I sense that when Dracht and Austin, uh, the, the, the march to the, towards the east, you know, that was very much seen by Polish and Ukrainian people as the goal. I, I don't know to which extent actually Hitler was so savage against Russia as he hated Poland and Ukraine. And that was the land that he wanted to adopt. He adopted part of Poland as German uh, territory and rest as, you know, future lands. And then uh, definitely towards the east of Poland as well. But I don't know if, if really Hitler wanted to end the entire, I don't know. Obviously, he was anti-communist. Miriam, he absolutely did. It's in mind camp. So and there's one thing we definitely did briefly touch on um with uh with the conversation with alexander though we didn't go into it in massive detail but uh slavs were seen as um undimensioned subhuman they were so the the, the people who the the um the nazis class as subhuman were africans jews gypsies and slavs like they were subhuman um so that's the reason why you have this weird kind of um, acceptance. It seems seems weird to us for um, other races. So um, people who were East Asian were seen as lesser, but not subhuman. So the Germans could have their alliance with the Japanese. Um, and then Aryan people, Indians, Persians, Middle Eastern people are actually seen um, as a variation of Aryan. So they're not actually s subhuman. Uh, but Slavs were, you know. So, uh, and then even within the accepted European uh, ra uh, races, as the Germans would say it, if you're blonde haired, blue eyed, and you're Germanic, you would, you're the top of the tree. So that's Germans, Scandinavians, and British people. The French and the Italians are seen on, on a slightly lesser tier. They're not subhuman, but they're not they're not pure. You know, the, 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 the Nazis had these crazy racial um, ideas, but they were really clear. Hitler was clear. We're going to clear out European Russia. We're going to clear it. 
and uh, the, the the writings are there. And but you made an interesting point because um, from the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917, there is a level of brutality that the Reds and the Whites, so the Communists and the Reactionaries, um, meet out to each other. With the Communists, it's the Commissars. So one of the reasons why the Reds end up winning that Russian Civil War is because each battalion has political Commissars. They get their orders straight from, from Moscow, from the Kremlin, this unit needs to go from point A to point B. That's what they're going to do. And the commissars are in every battalion. They're not military. They're, they're, not, they're, not milit- they're not generals. They're not saying, how are we going to get from point A to point B? When troops, uh, let's say, retreat or flee, the commissars shoot them. It's one of the reasons why the Red Army ends up being uh, victorious against the white in the Russian Civil War. And through that whole period of revolution from, let's say, 1917 to 1920, let's say 1922, because the Russian uh, Revolution kind of peters out, let's say it's 1922 and so I think 1922 is when the Soviet Union is actually formally declared. There is a le- level of, of brutality which, which goes on there, which is, is just kind of um, unspeakable. From it, it's unusual, it's probably a better word, viewed from a Western European perspective. But civil wars generally bring out the worst in both sides. Civil wars are quite apt to do that. And then you have the Ukrainian um, starvation deliberate starvation by Stalin in the early 1930s. And without looking at Wikipedia, I'm going to guess that I think 3 million Ukrainians are starved to death because what Stalin wants to do is to weaken Ukraine, but then also this is um, a reorganization of the land. And he there is more than enough food, but the commun- commissars... Uh, get the Ukrainians to work and to plough the food. However, they can't eat it, and three million die. And many Ukrainians will tell you that, not that that is the first flowering of uh, Ukrainians wanting their independence away from the Soviet Union, because in the Russian Civil War, um, there were two Ukrainian republics actually declared in like 1917 and like 1918, at least two are declared. No, 1918 and 1919, or Western Ukrainian Republic, and then one ran run Kiev as well. But that serves as to reignite uh, Ukrainian uh, demands for independence um, because of the way they're treated by by the Soviets. And when the depopulation then happens um, in areas like the Donbass and in other bits of southern and eastern Ukraine, Russian migrants then move in. So many Ukrainian nationalists will tell you that those areas of eastern Ukraine now, which have Russian-speaking uh, majorities, actually 
Uh, they used to be Ukrainian ones until the 1930s, until they were uh, kind of starved out. You make a fair point, Miriam, and it's a long-winded roundabout answer that I've given you, that um, there's a whole history of brutality which uh, the Soviets meted out to other Russian peoples. Of that, there is no doubt, but that doesn't uh, mitigate against that the Nazis told commanders going into that invasion at Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, forget the normal rules of war. Uh, you know, the Germans weren't taking, literally weren't taking prisoners. The Russians um, in the first months of that conflict lose so many troops because the Germans are so far and they envelop them, they surround them. And the Germans ju just, just slaughter them. The Germans weren't taking any prisoners. Initially, is one of the big strategic mistakes that the Germans actually make. A, to invade Russia, but B, not to treat the civilians with some level of kindness, because if they had, because people were fed up with the communists. The, the Ukrainians rise up when the Germans invade and proclaim another Ukrainian republic and want to fight on the side of the Germans because my enemy's enemy is my friend. And the Germans treat them, them badly, burn their villages, rape their women, etc., etc. So uh, it just, it's just a whole level of deprivation and uh, brutality, which those on the Western fronts, you know, just didn't uh, encounter. You know, the Germans were... The Germans were animals. It, it, it's as simple as that. And the Russians, to fight them, um, sent wave after wave of attack because their population was so much bigger that quite literally, um, I can't remember if this is a Russian commander or a German commander says, I think it's a German commander who says, he says, we keep shooting them, but eventually we'll run out of bullets. And quite literally, that's what happened. All the way through the, the conflict, when the Germans invade Russia, and again, don't quote me on this, but it's basically true. The, the Germans, though they are fighting in North Africa and then in Italy and then on the, in France when, when D-Day happens, there is still more German troops facing the Russians than ever were facing the, the Allies, whether it's in North Africa, Italy, or after D-Day, always. The, it's something like uh, three to one. It's either three or four to one. It's even a month after D-Day, when it's obvious that uh, the D-Day invasion um, isn't um, a distraction. This is the, this is, these are the Americans that have got a beachhead in Europe. The Germans still have three times, three to four times more troops facing the Russians. That was always their biggest threat because they're, they're trying to wipe Russia off the map to clear the land. Um, Anip, welcome, sir. What's going on, Raphael? I, you know, when you're bringing that up, it just made me think of something that I'd read that I was totally shocked about, you know, because you learn about World War II and... Obviously, the Americans did play a, a preeminent role, less or so in Europe, obviously in Asia. But 
when you look at the numbers, uh, the, they're so staggering. The Russian soldiers were basically cannon fodder. Uh, you had over 20 million Russians, uh, I think Soviets. It wasn't just Russians who died in World War II. And, you know, the numbers of the Americans in, in Europe, I I want to say it's certainly less than a million. I think it might even be less than half a million. Um, it may only be a few hundred thousand, uh, if I can recall. Well, I can look it up, yeah. but just staggering difference in, in the total number of casualties. That's all I was going to say. Yeah, yeah and I, I did make that point um, about uh, about 20 minutes ago or so. So here we go. Let's just look at these ca- casualty figures because I might even have underestimated the, 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 the Soviet losses. All right, so, and let, let's just go through this. All right, so main countries, let, um, so Wikipedia, Total deaths. Okay, so here we go. Uh, let's go through the main combatants. Um, it's got every country who declared war here, so bear with me. Right, France, this is more than a fourth for France, 600,000. Uh, it says including colonies, so that's 600,000. Germany loses 7.5 million people. So this is obviously combined. It's not just the army. These are these are civilians. So Germany does seven point five. France does six hundred thousand. Italy does half a million. I'm surprised that it's that much with Italy. Uh, Japan three million. And with that Japanese figure, a lot of that is going to be with the firebombing that the Americans do in the last year of the war. Like they flatten cities. Forget Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, the fire bombs, because so many of those Japanese cities uh, are, are made of wood, so the the Americans deliberately drop fire bombs, and uh, that's where they really do do the damage there. Poland, Poland, six million in Poland, and that's and a population of thirty four million. So uh, as a percentage there, that is significant. Uh, the Soviet Union, and it says estimates anywhere between 20 million to 27. So, as you said there, it's just out of all proportion compared to what we've heard before, 20 to 27 million estimated losses. United Kingdom, actually much more than I thought here, uh, 450,000. United States, 400,000. I'm, su- I'm surprised that that's as high as it is. But still, nothing like the 20 to 27 million that uh, the Russians um, lose. There you go. Can I ask you a question then, uh, because I feel that the way I learned history was that Nazi basically has uh, had alliance with Soviet Union uh, in the beginning of the Second World War. If they felt that, I mean, I don't, I agree with you that Slav- Slovak people were seen as uh, as, as uh, something uh, lower, which which was true because I mean obviously Polish people and and Ukrainians are are also uh, Slavi Slavia uh, tribes or whatever you want to call that, uh, you know. But 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 Soviet Union as such, in the, at least in the beginning of the Second World War wasn't really Nazi enemy, correct? I mean, how do you explain that phenomenon? It was uh, cynical, of... t- t- totally cynical. 
So that you're on about the Molotov, uh, the Ribbentrop Molotov Pact, yes. which happens in um, what August 1939. You will know uh, that um, one of the tragedies of Poland is to be historically to be between uh, more powerful neighbouring countries. If we take the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth out of it, medieval Poland, which is incredibly powerful, by the 17th century. Um, Poland and its decentralized government, and the fact that the Stem, I, I can never pronounce the Polish parliament. Um, uh, Senat. But, Senat. Senat. But what historically in the Middle Ages is called the SJEM, Sejem, or something, another, the historical one. Anyway, the long and short of it is uh, Poland has its very same? democratic. Are you talking about same? There you go. There yes, same. There you yeah. Go. Thank you. Um, the, it's not a centralized country, and it, and the the power of the aristocracy is is um, it, the aristocracy is very powerful. So by the late eighteenth century, Prussia, Russia, and Austria can just divide up Polish territory and then wipe Poland off the map. And this is one of the reasons why Poland. Post uh, post the fall of the Soviet Union, has allied itself to the West to be a bulwark against Russia in 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 the East. So, um, nineteen thirty nine, uh, quite simply, Hitler wants to connect uh, Eastern Prussia, which is Kaliningrad, that Russian enclave now, to. Uh, the rest of Germany, there's a small bit of Polish territory in between um, the uh, Gdansk Corridor. Uh, no, Gdynia. Let me get this right. It's Gdynia because Gdansk is Danzig, which is the free city. And after the Treaty of Versailles, that is deliberately created so that Poland has access to the Baltic. It's a small slither of land which cuts through Germany. The Germans want to recover this, and to re and um, to recover this, they go into a temporary um, alliance or treaty of non-aggression with the Russians, because the Russians have designs on eastern ter territory in Poland, which Poland has taken from from Russia in the Polish-Russian War of 1920-1921. So. Um, I cannot remember if I don't think Minsk was was part of um, part of Poland then, but half of what we now what is now Belarus uh, was actually Polish up until the Second World War. Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, was actually part of Poland. And basically, Molotov is the Russian foreign minister. Ribbentrop is the German foreign foreign minister and Ribbentrop goes to Molotov and says we are going to invade Poland but Poland had a massive army the Polish army on paper was one of the biggest in Europe and the Germans say we're going to invade to take back our corridor we're going to divide why don't we divide a line down the Vistula halfway through Poland you can come in and have the eastern bit, but we won't fight each other. The Germans go in. The Russians do not believe that Germany will so uh, wipe the floor 
with the polls as quickly as they as they do. I think it's about two weeks. So the Russians stand uh, watching this until uh, the end of September, and then they invade from the east. And there is this um, uh, tragic um, retreat of the pole, poles from the Germans and the retreating eastwards, and then the Russians ca- kind of come in. So some small remnants of the Polish army escape to Romania. The air force escapes by Romania to Britain. And then that's why you have the Katyn massacre, where um, there are so many Polish um, officers and generals who are then captured because they're retreating from the Germans by the Russians. The Russians basically don't know what to do with them. And, and they shoot all these Polish officers. And I, again, I cannot remember the numbers without looking at Wikipedia. I'm going to say something like 20,000, 10,000 uh, Polish officers are killed. And the Germans don't discover this until they invade Russia in 1941. And in the forest of Katyn, they see all these dead Polish officers. So basically, Poland is between these two powerful countries. And the Germans cynically have um, a non-aggression pact with the Russians to wipe Poland off the map in 1939. Two years later, the Germans then attack the Russians. The Russians don't see it coming, even though Russian spies or Soviet spies do tell uh, the, the, the Russian military that the Germans are planning to attack. Even Churchill tells the Russians that the Germans are about to attack. Stalin doesn't believe it. Such was the shock. Uh, when the Germans invade in 1941, that Stalin doesn't get out of bed for three days because he thinks he's going to be assassinated uh, by uh, people close to him because he's the one who basically said, no, the Germans will will, will never invade, even though he was told uh, by various generals and by spies and even by foreign powers like Churchill that the invasion was coming. Your knowledge is absolutely incredible. Like it's it's really amazing how much you you understand us and 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 know and, and know details about you know it's it's not surprising for me that you know the people know the history of cutting, but um you know I expect that from people in Poland, not not in Great Britain. And it's just like fascinating to listen to you how you simply explain those things that are extremely complicated appears to unpack them. In Poland, I did not learn on, about cutting the way you explained it in a school. I, I went to school, um, part of the school under communism. And at that time, Soviets claimed that cutting was done by Germany, by, by Nazi. Uh, so that's, that's just to explain uh, the, 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 the complexity of, you know, even I, I, I kind of have a little bit hesitation about like, I don't know how much I can rely on my historical knowledge because, you know, the time when I was educated, this was filtered through, you know, so much of uh, communist propaganda, this historical period. So I'm kind of unpacking it now a little bit, my memories. And of course, I, we knew, I mean, because my, my mother was in solidarity and we were in, my family was in the Polish underground and, and she was trying to give me as much of information that was possible at that time. Uh, she was actually had, uh, you know, his, 
she was had an A in history of Polish literature and but mainly foc- focused on romanticism. But she, she knew how to kind of get scoop out some of the historical information, even when it was blocked um, by the communist government. Uh, but it's just so fascinating to for me to rethink all these historical events. And that's why I'm like, I, I was taught so strongly that the Nazi were, I actually was taught that Nazi were enemies of Polish people and, you know, and other tribes, that other Western Slovak tri- uh, groups and, and not as much emphasis was on the a, on a enemy of the Soviet Union. And that aspect it was kind of, I don't know why, it was wiped out uh, from education, shouldn't be, I don't know, but it's very, very interesting. Yeah, Miriam, but Nazi was the enemy of slaves, Slavs, in general. And, yeah. Uh, they, yeah. They had the ideology that we are lesser people, so they have the same tactic in, on South Slavia, on East Slaves. And on that note, Yugoslavia lost 1.7 million people in the camps. So uh, saying that they want only Poland or they didn't want to, they they look all Slavs like lesser people, right? And Yugoslavia was the fifth country per capita by the losses because they uh, had the systemical cleanses of all Slavic people. So I, that, that's why I came and uh, Royfield uh, explained why they had no, no, the no. agreement. And, and I'll re- yeah, and um, and and thank you for for bringing up the the amount of uh, deaths that Yugoslavia suffered from because it's I made the point with Alexander that especially people from Western countries um, we only think of um, the invasion of France uh, maybe Norway and then. D-Day and, and North Africa. At least that's what the British think. The Americans think uh, Pacific, and then they go, right, oh, there's a bit of D-Day. The Russians, for understandable reasons, think that they did all, all the, they took all, all the losses, and they think of that German invasion. Totally understandable. Every, the major combatants in that war forget about Yugoslavia, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria and Greece completely forget and um, the partisans what they did in Yugoslavia um, they liberated themselves they, they literally are the one country who can honestly say no we liberated ourselves we didn't have to wait for the Russians to come along or the Americans or the British or whoever we, we did it ourselves so adept were they with their guerrilla tactics at um, you know, dare I say, you know, yeah. screwing up the, uh, the the German war effort. I mean, the first one of the first town who was liberated during the Nazi occupation uh, in '41 and '42 was in Yugoslavia by Chetniks and partisans because we had at the beginning of war we had a two anti-fascist Nazis movement. One was Chetniks who was like uh, King Loyal, and we have communist partisans. Uh, after that, Chetniks changed their policy and the uh, king denied them and stuff. So it's complicated. But Yugoslavia at the beginning had a two anti-Nazi uh, uh, 
parties who, who was involved in the war. But I want to tell you, Royfield, uh, if Alexander, because I uh, hearing and he's very no, and he's interesting in Yugoslavia, he can hit me a message and I can send him some uh, Yugoslavian historian if he's interesting and he can read a little bit more deeper if he want. A- absolutely, absolutely. Um, Igor, wh- whilst you're here, right? Because uh, I've been to I've been to Croatia a few times. I've never been to Serbia. I've been to Bosnia. And the impression that, that I get uh, from those two places is that Tito still has quite a good reputation, um, definitely in Bosnia. Bosnians are like, you know, Tito w- w- was a good guy. He held the country t- together. What's Tito's um, reputation like um, amongst uh, Serbians? So all generation like them. I mean, I think that is like common for all ex-Yugoslavian republic because they lived very well. And the communism, socialism here was a totally different than the Soviet Union. And he said stop to the Stalin and stuff like that, right? So we had the freedoms, but we had a very good economical life, the social security. And people loved him because that we, we had the, the least crime rates in Europe back then. We had our passports. We could go to states. We go travel whenever we want. So I think there is nostalgia for that kind of time because after the 90s, that all changed. So I think that is one of the reasons, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was a good life here, you know, like... Um, I think a lot of yeah. Polish people and from East Europe are actually coming here for holidays and stuff like that. So it was totally different than other Warsaw uh, block. Um, so yeah, that's why they like him, you know. So you know, I didn't realize until I was speaking to speaking to somebody who's uh, Bosnian, um, and they were saying that you know, growing up in the early 1980s Yugoslavia was not closed off to the rest of Europe east or west you know they talked about having family holidays in Hungary uh going to Germany going to France you know just getting my dad's car and drive where it is something which you know um, Eastern Germans couldn't do, Poles, uh, uh, Czechoslovaks, uh, Romanians, um, Hungarians, etc., etc. That Yugoslavia, um, because it wasn't uh, a Warsaw Pact country and under the direct control of, of the Russians, you know, that great freedom, which is something I just did not know. I didn't appreciate. Yeah, we, we was like very neutral and... Uh... After '48, when the Tito said no to Stalin, uh, we leaned back to the West a little bit, even he was a communist. And after that, he was playing the good game between Khrushchev and the West, and you know, so he he, he was a leader of non-alignment movement. You probably know that. Mm-hmm. That include uh, Egypt India and, as uh, well. India as well, right? So, so he, he had a good uh, political reputation all around the world, and we we had a lot of benefit from that. But unfortunately, that ended in nineties. So, yeah, that's a, that's another uh, massive tragedy. And um, anyway, let's not get onto yeah. the, uh, uh, the, the 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 Bosnian Yugoslav or uh, Serb. Uh, 
kind of wars because it will, will be here forever. Yeah, but uh, you said um, that the Second World War have a lot of impact nowadays. Second World War Two was have a lot of impact in nineties too. Like it's, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, a- a- absolutely, and um, you know, it's it, it's just interesting from um, a historical perspective to see um, the borders of the the ex Yugoslavia because you can see. You know the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You know you can see all all of these old uh, nations and empires which you thought were totally consigned to history, and you can see the echoes of their borders. If you look at uh, the borders of Croatia and and Bosnia, you can see the Ottoman Empire. It, 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 it's just um, you know, and what the Kingdom of the Croats, Croats, Serbs, and Slovenes did that creation was to paper over historical enmities, cultural differences, whether it's Catholic and Orthodox, and then Muslim, um, linguistic uh, differences, etc., etc. And uh, uh, yeah, but uh, there is no big linguistic differences between Serbs and Croats. We speak the, basically the very similar. Oh language. no, but I'm I'm, yeah. I'm on about Slovenes and Macedonians now. Yeah, yeah, you they know. they had a different yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, no. and the, sorry to interrupt you. So, idea no, of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was uh, in nineteenth century. They, there was idea that all South Slavs uh, are united. That was like a romantic idea, and that's why Yugoslavia is made. Yugoslavia mean on English South Slavs, basically. I just wonder mm-hmm. if you didn't know that. Uh, oh uh, no! And I remember you just reminded me of Yugo cars as well. I forgot you, you people even made your own cars, which was yeah. a, a thing. But, um, car but ever, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that was a Lada, a Lada or a Skoda back in the day. Those are terrible cars as well. But um, or a Trabant in in East Germany. Yeah, those were those were pretty pretty, pretty bad cars. Cool. On that note, yeah. definitely going to bed. Two hours, 25 minutes, that's enough from me. Thanks, everyone, for being a part of this, staying around, and uh, and also listening uh, to myself and Alexander have a little bit of a chat. Um, it was just a last-minute thing. Literally half an hour before I opened, up the, uh, opened the door, that's when I said to him, Let, let's do it. And uh, I think it turned out to be a, a good one. Uh, thanks again, everyone. Take care, look after yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.